You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're going to attempt, Lord willing, to cover a couple more verses than we've been getting to. In our studies of John 17, Lord willing, we will cover verses 9 through 13 today. And so I'd like to ask you, if you're able, to stand with me and we'll read John chapter 17, verses 9 through 13 together, and then pray and begin. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 9. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Thank you. You may be seated. As you're being seated, bow with me once again in prayer. Holy Father, O Lord, I do thank You for the words that are in front of us now. Oh, Father, what comfort it is to know that Your only Son has already prayed for us. Oh, God, please give us grace to enter into what that means, to draw deep encouragement from it. Father, I pray that as we look through these words offered up by Your Son, that they would have their intended effect upon our hearts. Oh God, we know that His prayers, the prayers of Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, they avail much. They are effectual. Lord, I pray that we would see that very effect here today as we grow in our knowledge of You and love for You and love toward one another. Oh God, I ask that You would guard this time for Your own glory. Lord, shut my mouth if I would say anything that is not true of you. I pray that you would stop me. But where what is said is true, I pray for great liberty, for boldness. Lord, I pray for genuineness. Lord, I have no desire to put on any kind of a show or performance. And yet how can we speak about eternal things without passion and excitement and joy? Lord, help our joy to be fulfilled as we come to hear from your Son here today. I ask this in His name. Amen. So you'll recall, <coughs> excuse me, the last number of weeks we've been looking at John chapter 17 specifically, looking at Jesus' prayer on behalf of 
the disciples at the time, but as we've already considered a number of times, this prayer was on your behalf if you're a Christian. If you're trusting Christ, everything you're reading here in Jesus' prayer has an application to you. And that's extremely, extremely encouraging. Most recently, last week, we were considering verses 6 through 8. And the chief theme was seeing what it meant that Jesus Christ manifested God the Father on the earth. Do you recall that? It was not just Him speaking the words of God as every other prophet had. It wasn't merely a proclamation of true things about God, but it was actually a visitation from God. In our closing thought last week, we saw how necessary and needful it is that God continue to rend the heavens by the Holy Spirit into the hearts of His people. They're regenerated. And even as Christian people, that we would be aware of the Spirit's presence in our life in the same way. And today we pick up verses 9-13. through 13. The title of this sermon is True Christian Joy. True Christian Joy. We'll start a little bit different than normal. Look with me at verse 13. Here's the way I'm hoping that this works out. Is to look at verse 13 where we have really the end goal of our thoughts today put before us. And so hopefully by the time we get to verse 13, we will have accomplished that task. Jesus says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus starts off in verse nine. I am praying for them. I don't believe there's any greater consolation that any person could ever have, especially in the midst of hardships and difficulty in life than to know that Jesus Christ already has prayed for you and that He is continuing to pray for you. As I mentioned, Jesus has already explicitly said at the end of our text today, the end of the verses we're considering today, that He's saying these things so that His followers would have His joy fulfilled in them. So here's the question, very simple. Are you filled with Christ's joy? Are you filled with the joy of the Lord, the joy of Christ that he's talking about here? Or perhaps do you hear this idea of being filled with the joy of the Lord and do you think, well, that must be nice for some people. Some Christians get to live with an experience of joy in Christ, but I'm just hoping that I get to heaven someday. But the real experience of joy now, is that a foreign concept to you? Jesus is expressly saying He's praying. Remember, we saw back in verse 3 that the experience of eternal life is something we're supposed to have now. Our experience of joy and knowing God is something we're supposed to know here today, right now, every day. Knowing God. And He's telling us that as a result of hearing His words set before you now, it should give you a fullness of joy. And if so, if you say, I am filled with the joy of Christ, on what grounds, on what basis? Why would you say, I have joy in Christ? What is the cause of your joy or your rejoicing? If you're like me and many other Christians, your joy probably tends to ebb and flow with circumstance. Discouraging, hard circumstances cause your joy levels to kind of gradually wane a little bit. Or your, as your sin level goes up, your joy level goes down. Well, what is Jesus saying here? He says, our opening line, I am praying for them. What difference 
do Jesus' prayers actually make in your life? Is there an actual, practical, real difference in your life and your experience of life on the earth because of what Jesus has done praying for you? To kind of drive at the significance of this for a moment, I want to read a couple of scriptures to you in light of this. Psalm 34 verse 15 says this, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. And Proverbs 15.29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. What do you think about that? God hears the prayer of the righteous. His ear is toward the cry of the righteous, but not toward the wicked. How does that meet with you when you consider your own prayer life, your own joy in life? I know that for many people, our tendency is that because we frequently fail, that our feeling of separation from God because of our failure leads us to not having joy and actually not feeling like we can go to God in prayer, to talk to God, to pray to God. A very personal example, I've probably shared this with you before, um, is I can remember as a teenage a teenager, as a young man, whenever I would sin, which was often, I didn't want to talk to my dad. Even as a young adult, whenever I was 18, living out of the house, when I would be involved in some sin, if my dad called, I would ignore, not listen. And he always knew it. Isn't that funny how parents know? He knew when I was up to something. He would call me and I wouldn't, we didn't want to talk to him. Shame, guilt, feeling of disappointing him. And that's how we often feel before God. Our prayers become an overwhelming uh, misery, it seems. And my question is, do you find that you're overwhelmed with a feeling of unworthiness when you're praying to God? When you come to God in prayer, the Scripture tells you the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. Is that you? Can you say when you go to God in prayer, God, here I am, the righteous one. Hear me. Is that the way you feel whenever you come to God in prayer? Or he says that his ears are towards the righteous. Is God listening? Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't hear the prayers of wicked people. What it means is he doesn't hear them with a mind to answer them or to help them or an interest for their good. If you're an unbeliever, what it's saying is that God has a vested interest in hearing and doing something with regards to the prayers of the righteous. And so, do you feel when you pray that you have a right to plead before Him or not? How is it that any sinful person can come before blazing holiness in God and not be consumed with thoughts of their own sin and failure? You see, I'm convinced this is one of the reasons why it's so beneficial for a married couple to spend time praying together. I wish that Rain and I prayed more often together. You know why? Because you're so incredibly vulnerable when you pray. I think this is also why people don't often pray at corporate prayer meetings for very long. And if they do, oftentimes we have a tendency to pray about trivial things. Because when we go deeper, we're vulnerable. We're exposed. How are you going to talk to the God who sees into your soul and knows everything about you and all your sin with even a shred of arrogance? Even a shred of self-confidence? When you come before God in this way, here's what's... David's expression in Psalm 51 3 he says for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me what I'm driving at is that it is a big deal 
that Jesus Christ prays for you. That He prays for us as His people. Now, you probably as well as I know many people, extremely ignorant people, who will bounce right into prayer with no regard to their sin, no understanding of their unworthiness before God, a holy God. And I submit to you that many prayers that get offered up might as well be offered to a cow out in the pasture. People who have no concept of who God is and no regard for their sin against God think that they're going to bounce right in there before Him and that He's going to hear them in that way. Of course, on the other hand, that's one negative extreme. People who come to God with no reverence, no respect for the Holy, for the Almighty, and then you have others who as Christians are so sensitive to their own sin and failure that they're almost paralyzed when they come to pray. They don't feel like they can. They have no confidence that God will hear them at all. And it's because they know they don't deserve it. I'm asking, what difference does it make that Jesus prays for us? Well, here's the primary contention in all of this. We're saying that God hears the prayers of the righteous and you're not righteous. So why is God going to listen to you? Jesus says, I'm praying for them. On what grounds? Why is that such a blessed thing to hear? John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, this is John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So something about Jesus, this Jesus in our text praying, something about His taking away the sins of the world is significant about His ability to pray for you and for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. You remember, the Father, God, hears the prayers of the righteous. Here's one praying that has no sin. Here's one lifting His voice to the Father on your behalf that there's nothing to keep or separate Him from the one He's praying to on your behalf. He knew no sin. And it all is put perfectly together for us in Hebrews chapter 4. Turn there with me for just a moment. The relationship between the significance of Christ's prayers and His life and sinlessness and perfect righteousness. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Think about this in light of Jesus saying, I'm praying for them. It says, since then we have a great high priest. Pause interestingly. John 17, commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. Continue. Here's this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the point. Jesus' perfect righteousness, His sinlessness, is the only grounds for any real prayer and any access to God the Father. My argument in light of this, what we're being told is that if you pray with an arrogant kind of self-confidence at all, repent and realize your own unworthiness. 
And if you're one whose prayers are stunted by the knowledge of your own sin, they're weakened, they're lessened, and you don't feel like you can pray, realize that Jesus Christ, this righteous one, ever lives to intercede for you. And the grounds, this is what we're seeing in Hebrews 4, the grounds for our bold access to the throne of grace. What is it? We say we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Not because of anything in me. And it's not because that's not holy ground I'm entering into. I have bold access to the throne of grace on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this righteous one is the one we see here and now in verse 9 who says, I'm praying for them. One other scripture to consider in light of this. Look at John chapter 11. This is Jesus' prayer immediately before raising Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42 says this. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. You catch that? The Father always hears Why? He's the only one righteous. He is the one the Father is most interested in hearing from. When He prays, the Father's attention is captivated upon Him. He listens to the voice of His Son praying. Why? There's a relationship that existed for all eternity. And then you have this one from all eternity as a man, spotless, righteous, loving God. The Father's ear upon Him. This is extremely important. Now, maybe, maybe you're thinking about this in the context of where we've been in John 16. You recall where we saw in chapter 16, verse 26 and 27, Jesus said, In that day you will ask in My name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. Now, you see the contradiction potentially here? Jesus says, you're not, I'm not going to ask for you. You're, you're going to have direct access to God. You're going to be able to ask for, your, for yourself. And then He says, He's praying for them. Does that seem odd to you? Why is it that Jesus is praying here? And maybe someone says, well, He says in that day, so evidently that day hadn't happened yet. I don't believe that's what it's saying. Because we read later on in the epistles that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us after that day, after he's ascended back to the father, he continues his work of intercession. So what what's the point in this? If Jesus has said we could ask the father directly, why would he go on emphasizing that he himself was praying for us? Well, let me suggest the answer to you is that Jesus is making two different points that are both true. What do I mean? The point back in John 16 was concerning our relational access to the Father. He's telling us the Father Himself loves you. You have been granted. You have access to the Father. And even in our text in John 17, how often have we read this? Yours they were. We were Christ before. We were the Father's before the Son ever came to die for us. We were already the Father's. And so we have access to the Father. Jesus is telling telling them you have access to the Father relationally. Back in John chapter 16. 
And the point that we're seeing here in John 17, Jesus is continuing to pray for us, even though we have that access, because He is ensuring that His purposes for us will not fail. You see, the Father has already demonstrated that He loves you by sending His Son to die for you. He already has an interest in you. The Father already cares about you. And the Father is already ready to hear you as His child. Jesus prays for His people, not because they don't have access to the Father, but to guarantee His purpose and plan for the lives of His people. The reason Jesus continues to pray is that He's ensuring that His purposes will not fail. Here's the point. The Father loves you. He hears you. But how negligent are you in taking advantage of the access that you have? How often do you neglect prayer to the Father? Oh, all access to the Father is given to you. You can enter boldly. But how often do you do that? And, and furthermore, how often are our prayers so focused on self and not necessarily the will of God? Jesus prays according to the will of the Father. You see, the prayers of Jesus, the difference is it's not that we don't have access. It's that his prayers are effectual. His prayers will bring about his good purposes for his people. We have one example of this back in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, a beautiful example of Jesus praying for someone, praying for one of his own. In order to bring about his purposes in their life. To guarantee it. Luke 22 begin in verse 31. Through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now notice, here's the text. Peter had access to the Father. Jesus has told us as much. Here Jesus is praying for Peter, what? That his faith not fail. Here's the significance of something like this. Though Peter had access to God in the moment of his denial, he was not going to God in prayer. He was cowering before a little girl. Failed. Would eventually go and weep bitterly. Jesus' prayers are effectually and they ensure that His people will remain. That they will not fall finally away. Peter didn't. Did you notice in the text? Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And if you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Is that what it says? When you turn again. It's not up for debate. It's not possible that Peter not turn again, repent and come back to Christ. Jesus' prayer guaranteed that. And that leads us right into the next part of verse 9. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This next point is likely to make people uncomfortable at best and mad at worst, but we must be faithful to what the Scriptures say. Jesus says very clearly, He is not praying for the world. 
Now, in light of our last reference we were just looking at in the first point about Peter, consider again, and we've considered this before, what's the main difference between Peter and Judas? We're going on to hear about Judas in a couple of verses down, but just for our consideration, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Do you know really the only difference you'll find in the New Testament between Peter and Judas? They both betrayed Jesus. They both failed miserably. They both denied or gave Him up, gave Him over. They both did that. The difference is this. Jesus prayed for Peter. Jesus said, I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. You will not find a Scripture in your Bible that Jesus says to Judas, Judas, I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. If Jesus had prayed that, Judas' faith would not have failed. But Jesus was not going to pray that, as we're going on to see in our text today, that the Scriptures be fulfilled. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. Judas was not one of His from before the foundation of the world. So He does not pray in that way for Him. Here's the point. The difference between Judas and Peter was not Peter's righteousness or faithfulness. It was Jesus' righteousness. It was Jesus' faithfulness. And it was Jesus' effectual prayer on behalf of Peter. Now, if that doesn't encourage your soul right now, I don't know what will. That Jesus' prayers for you are effectual. And though you fail, His prayers will not. His prayers will come to pass in the lives of all of those for whom He died. That's what we're seeing here. God's saving and securing, not only saving, but securing work is specifically and effectually applied to His people. He says, I'm not praying for the world. There will be none lost whom Jesus has prayed for in this way. And here's the point. The finished work of Jesus on the cross has successfully and certainly secured everyone for whom He died. Now immediately, the argument's going to come against this thought. Immediately, the point will come, people will say, well, there are other Scriptures that contradict that. I don't like that teaching that Jesus died to save His people exclusively. The ones He came for. The ones the Father has given to Him. The very ones He's praying for now. People will say, I don't really like that. I think other Scriptures contradict that. Well, let me first suggest to you that it is incredibly foolish to try to search out contradictions against Jesus. This is a plain statement. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. To try to show that to be a contradiction is to do exactly what the Jews did to Jesus when He was on the earth. To try to trap Him and show how He's contradicting Himself. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing is to suggest that every supposed contradiction that people will tell you about this in your Bible, I believe is demonstrated to be perfectly consistent with Jesus' words when you look at it in context. What do I mean? Let me give you one example of this. One example of a text that people will say, well, that look, obviously it can't mean that. Well, look with me at one of the common ones from 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. Who did Jesus come for? Who is Jesus praying for? Who did Jesus die for? Who is Jesus interceding for? Who will be saved? Certainly. That's the question we're answering. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 2 with me. People hear this. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. They say, well, 1 John 2, 2 says He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Is that kind of a troubling text to read? 
Your Bible is telling you Jesus' his propitiatory work, His saving work on the cross, His positive righteousness, and Him suffering under the wrath of God is not only for these people, but for the whole world. Now, does that seem to not line up with what Jesus is saying in John chapter 17 and verse 9? I'm not praying for the world. Well, it may sound like it until you back up a verse and read the verse before. Verse 1, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In the context, do you see the relationship between Christ's propitiation and His prayer? He says, an advocate. We have an advocate with Jesus Christ the righteous. We're seeing in our text the significance of the fact that Jesus, the righteous one, is praying for them. Now here's the plain and obvious question to ask. Do you suppose that Jesus is offering prayers, advocating for people who are currently in hell? People who are not born again are saved. Is He praying for them? Because in that text... His propitiation is immediately connected to His praying, His advocacy. They go together. You cannot separate them. There is an inseparable relationship between His intercession and the blood which He has offered up on behalf of those for whom He intercedes. That's the point. And see, the significance of this is not primarily to say, well, a lot of people don't have any chance to be saved, so let's not even try. If that's what you're hearing, you're not hearing me rightly. You need to repent. Here's the point that it is a certain salvation for all who believe in Him. That's the point. That He prays for those whom the Father has given Him and that He's accomplished salvation. In other words, an observation I made this morning, talking with someone. If God is not absolutely sovereign over salvation, Jesus' entire prayer here is nothing more than wishful thinking. You can get no encouragement from this prayer from Jesus unless God is sovereign and able to deliver on the very things Jesus is praying. If it in any way is left up to you to go and work out and accomplish for yourself, if that is the case, then you are going to constantly be discouraged by your own failure. Think on this. If you're constantly measuring whether or not God is interested in hearing from you based on your own righteousness and your own ability, you're always going to come back and think, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. But when I say no, this is certain because of Jesus. And it is not just a possibility. It's not wishful thinking. It's absolutely certain. He says, for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Not they might be. They are yours. That's the point of this. If you as a Christian are ever tempted to doubt or to question the certainty of Jesus' prayers for you, you only need to ask this question. Was His sacrifice, which He offered up as a high priest, you know that's what they would do. The high priest goes into the temple and they offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. What did he offer as a sacrifice for his people? His own blood. He gave his life for the sins of the world. Was his sacrifice accepted? Was the righteousness and blood of Jesus good enough? The answer is indeed it was. He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, 
for they are yours. Now this next point, the end of verse 9, the next point Jesus makes ought to fill you with joy and excitement once again at the certainty of His prayers for you. And to see that God's love for you is as certain as the relationship within the Trinity. Again, this is a repeated theme and it's very important. When Jesus prays for you, He's not trying to convince the Father to love you. He's not trying to convince the Father to have an interest in you that the Father doesn't already have. Now, I know that may sound like a repeated point, and yet how much do we need to hear this? Again and again and again, the Father Himself loves you and is interested in you. Jesus says, these that I'm praying for, He's not saying, Father, let me convince you to actually be interested in these people. He's saying, I'm praying for the ones that you already are interested in. That's the point in this. For those whom you have given me, for they're already yours. They're already yours. That's something helpful to remember when you're praying for other Christians. You know what I'm saying? You have a Christian, a loved one that you know that's going through difficulty. I can guarantee you when you pray for them, you don't love them more than Jesus does. You don't love them more than the Father does. And so you're actually you're going alongside God, the father and God, the son and God, the spirit and saying, I love this one that you love. Do something for them, help them, grow them, sanctify them, whatever it is. We see that Christ has received us as a gift from his father. We haven't really emphasized this perhaps to the degree that we should. Jesus says, but for those whom you've given me. Do you think about yourself as a gift that God the Father gave to His Son? That's a fascinating way for Christian people to think about themselves. And for us reform-minded folks, we think, well, that wasn't a very good gift, was it? I know my sin. I know what's true in me. How can that be of any worth? No, you misunderstand. It's the value of the gift. You know Hudson, well, if he listens to this when he's older, he might not be happy with me. He got me a Christmas present this last year. You know what it was? It was a little like sweater shirt for a weenie dog. <laughs> Hudson thought it was like a toboggan I could wear hunting. You should have seen me trying to put this thing on. Arena was laughing hysterically. Now here's the thing. I kept it because I love Hudson. Is that gift doing me any good? Not at all. But I love my son. And I'm going to keep it. The relationship between the father and the son. Isn't that good? No, you don't have anything to offer that he doesn't already have. You're no better than this little dog sweater. But the one you've been given by and the one you've been given to love each other eternally and infinitely. Which makes you worth something. Because you've been given by one to the other. Do you see my point in this? Glorious, the triune relationship. You see, Christ has received you as a gift from His Father and Jesus would just as soon discard you as He would stop loving His Father. The affection, the prayers of Jesus on behalf of His people is intimately related to His unending and eternal love for His Father. And likewise, the Father chose And loved us before the Son accomplished redemption for us. He sent Him in order to save us because He loved us. And the Father would just as soon discard you as He would stop loving His Son. Why is that? 
Because my text says that it's the Father who's given them to the Son, but then it's the Son who goes and accomplishes redemption on behalf of them at the cross. He does the work the Father gave Him to do. Here's my point. That the Father would just as soon reject and stop loving His Son and discard you. Because He loves His Son. And He's accepted His Son's perfect sacrifice on your behalf. What this means is, That as long as the triune God exists together in perfect, loving relationship, your soul is utterly secure. You want to talk about security of the believer, soul security. You don't get any more secure than the triune God in that relationship. You cannot improve upon that. It is as sure as it possibly can be. And not only that, not only are you secure, but the love that we enjoy as Christian people, it's as though there's this great, enormous cup of the love of the triune God, and it's constantly overflowing, and you and I are standing around it, and it's just spilling over onto us. We benefit from this love of the triune God. Verse 10 says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Again, further, a further reflection of the same point we're seeing. How many of you would say that you have longed to have some kind of confirmation of God's love for you personally, individually? Surely we all have, especially in those low points where I just want to have some sense or feeling or, or, or knowledge of God's love for me. If only you could hear God say to you, I love you and have your soul believe it. This verse is emphasizing again to us that our union and belonging to the Father and the Son is as clear as it possibly can be. All mine are yours and yours are mine. We're talking about a relentless kind of love that will not fail. I reminded, hopefully maybe we can look in the future to singing this song together in worship, but I want to read you these lyrics off this song called Relentless Love. This is the kind of love that we're hearing about between the Father and Son and for you. Relentless love. I'll read the four verses and then the chorus at the end. I'm not going to sing it. Relentless love embraced my soul in ages past. Love undeserved, unknown, yet deep and vast. God set His love on me, on me in spite of me. Salvation's work is His from first to last. Relentless love pursued my heart, though I would hide. Was unreturned, yet undeterred by pride. Till by a grace unsought, My rebel soul was caught, redeemed by love that would not be denied. Relentless love preserves my life from unbelief, sustains through my sin, my doubt, my grief. Since Christ has done it all, though feeble, I'll not fall. His wounded hands hold me the sinner's chief. Relentless love transforms my soul and its delights, exceeds the fleeting joys which once sufficed, held by his love for me, a hold which sets me free. I have my heart's desire, and that is Christ. And the chorus bursts forth unbounded love, unfailing love, 
Love raised upon a tree. Unending love, prevailing love. My Savior's sovereign love for me. That's good. That's really, really good. Why is it that we can say that this love is endless? That it's prevailing, that it will not fail, that it cannot be denied. All of these things, it's because it originates within the triune God. It's a love that's been that's that's existed for all eternity. That's why you can read, go and read in Malachi where God says through Malachi, I have loved you to the nation of Israel. What does he mean? It's with an everlasting kind of love with no beginning. His love for you, it existed in the relationship that was there between the triune God. That's what you're brought into. And I say that if it is indeed true, and it is that the love you and I know from God is the very love that exists within the Trinity, it's blasphemous to say that that can end. That can't end. Your soul could not be more secure than it is. You cannot escape. Isn't that a funny thing to say? You cannot escape the relentless love of God. You belong to the Son. You belong to the Father. That's what he's saying. All mine are yours and yours are mine. You belong to them. If you think for a moment you could ever stop belonging to the Son, well, you still belong to the Father. You're not going anywhere. You're so secure in Him. And He says that He is glorified in you. Verse 11 goes on and tells us, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, I don't know about you, but I see a very natural progression of thought in this prayer. Consider this. Jesus is praying at this point. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in my name. What for? Which you have given me that they may be one. Even as we are one. Do you see how this is unfolding, unpacking? It makes perfect sense that that should be the end result of our union to God. Let me let me make it maybe a little clear. The position Jesus is describing in this prayer is that he and the father are one. They're in perfect union with one another. They love one another. And that perfect loving relationship has overflowed. And now it is shared with individual human beings made in his image. Does it not follow? Necessarily so that all of those who have partaken of that same love should be connected in loving relationship even as they are. We've partaken of something that existed in a perfect context. Surely our least inclination and desire should be towards that. That we would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. I suppose positionally we are. It's that practical part gives us trouble, isn't it? Being one in agreement and loving relationships practically. I guess I'll share it with you. I already told one funny thing. I heard a preacher one time say there's a difference between unity and a union. He said, if you take two cats and tie their tails together and throw them up over an electric line, you'll have a union. But there's not going to be a lot of unity there. The union, the, the oneness that Jesus is praying after is a, a heart's longing for the same glorious God in the soul. And I suggest, and I know both my experience and observation alike, testifies to the fact that there is a great need 
for Christian people to share in loving relationships with one another. Now, let me be clear. This is not a call for pseudo unity. This is not a call to pursue some sort of agreement with people that we don't actually agree with. This is not what we're saying. It's not a false ecumenism that ignores essential gospel truths. But certainly we ought to be able to rejoice with and love all those who are trusting the finished work of Christ. I wonder, is there any more frequent desire, practically speaking, in your life than to have relational unity with the people that you know? I can't think of a more often prayer that Kelly and I have prayed in our weekly elders meeting than for the unity of this church. That people would love one another and grow in relationship. I don't know. Can you think of a single prayer we've offered more than that one? Week by week by week. Why? Because we need it week by week by week. The encouraging thing to me is Jesus prayed for it too. And His prayers are effectual. His prayers are more certain than mine. He's prayed for this. An encouraging thing to consider. But I think about this practically even in the context of marriages. Do you pray for this kind of unity with your spouse? Is there hope of having this prayer actually answered? Jesus, as the righteous one, as our high priest, whose prayers are effectual, prays before you today that we would be united together with him and with one another. And as I mentioned already, not only that we would be united, but that our unity would be likened unto the relationship he has with his father. Now, that sounds impossible to me that I would be having the same degree of unity with you that the father and son share. That's what he's praying for. And perhaps that's going to be an ongoing growing process until glorification. And then we finally will be one as they are one. But I believe we're supposed to long for and pursue that even now. Even now. And the point is, and I mentioned this already, that Jesus' prayers are not only wishful thinking, but they are guaranteed. And so, it's set in contrast in this text with our relationship to the world. As we've seen, praying for them, not for the world. Here's my point. Christian people ought to be more concerned with their relationships with other Christians than they are with any relationship they have with unbelievers. You think about that? And oftentimes it works just the opposite. It happens the same in families. You'll notice that siblings will be much nicer to people who aren't their siblings than they are to their siblings. They want the approval, the respect, the appreciation, the applause, all these things from people outside the home, but the siblings will fight like cats and dogs. It's like, don't you realize that this person you're growing up with, you ought to love and care for them more than anybody out there. Well, in the church, I'm afraid that same tendency happens. Sometimes maybe because in a certain way it's easier to love other Christian people and enjoy that, but we end up neglecting one another and focusing our attention. We're supposed to do good to all men, but especially the household of faith, the Scripture says. Here's my point, though that we ought to be interested in pursuing this kind of unity in relationships with one another. Verse 12, John 17, 12 says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction 
that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So here's our last point. The first point we saw about this encouragement, Jesus prayed for you and He's righteous. The second thing we began to see is the basis of Jesus' prayer is the love and relationship in the triune God. Here's the third and last point in our text today on that in that realm, which ought to fill you with joy, is that Jesus has prayed that you would be kept from falling away. So what we read about Peter earlier, Jesus prayed. He says, I prayed for you that your faith not fail. That's exactly what you're reading from Jesus here. If you're a Christian, Jesus was praying that your faith not fail. You cannot be lost. That's what He's saying. That I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He's praying, keep them in Your name. Now I want to ask a question because we've already considered Judas today. Jesus mentions Him specifically here. Well, not by name, but that's who He's describing. The Son of Destruction was Judas. Why does He mention Him here? In the context... Of giving joy. He's told us, I've said these things that their joy be fulfilled, that my joy be fulfilled in them. What does bringing up Judas here, why would that give them joy? What for? Well, Judas was one of the twelve. Judas was considered by everyone to be truly one of Christ's sheep. I believe Jesus brings up Judas here because it would be easy for the disciples to look at what happened to Judas and to live in constant dread that they were going to meet the same fate. That, well, Judas was one of us and he fell away. So what's to keep us from falling away? Jesus brings them up not to cause them to fear falling away, but to guarantee for them that they won't. He draws and describes Judas as an exception here. Now, Jesus is not saying that Judas was a true Christian and he lost his salvation. He's making it clear that Judas was seen and believed to be one of the twelve. And yet even his falling away was a fulfillment of the Scripture. It wasn't God losing His grip on him. It wasn't God saying, oh no, Judas fell away. What am I going to do now? It was according to the plan from before the foundation of the world. What does that tell you? His point is that not that you can lose your salvation, but actually the opposite. He's saying that if you're one who's given to Him by the Father, you cannot and will not be lost. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I love that this is written by Peter, one who was very similar to Judas, right? I think Peter had a pretty good understanding of why it is that Peter didn't fall away like Judas did. Jesus told him, I've prayed for you that when you turn again, well, then Peter turns again. And I think he's probably thinking about that when he pins this in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One question, who's the one getting the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ? It's not you and it's not me. It's this Jesus who's doing the keeping, the guarding, 
the securing, the saving. I can imagine Peter writing this and thinking back, the only way I didn't fall away is because he was keeping me. He was guarding the deposit that he made. He was securing my soul. He prayed for me. And he, if you're a Christian, has prayed for you. Jesus, the Son of God specifically, he might as well have said your name. It's that intimate. I'm praying for them. It's not just a generalized thing. Specifically prayed for you. If you're united to Christ by faith, according to the supernatural working of God, your soul is secure. And once again, the triune relationship guarantees it. So our last verse, he says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The questions I want to close with are these. Do you have joy in you? Do you have the joy of Christ in your soul? Are you filled with confident assurance that God loves you, that He's interested in you, that He hears you? Can you rejoice? Are you unified with other Christian people? Do you find it it's something that you long to enjoy fellowship with other Christians? Do you know that your soul will not be lost? <clears throat> the only true source of Christian joy is to know that every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing which is offered you in Christ is only on the basis of Christ Himself. His prayers are the ones that avail for us. His blood is what makes us whiter than snow. And true joy and true Christian fellowship is necessarily the overflow of being united to the triune God. And every confidence that you have, every assurance in God that you have is because of His Son, Jesus Christ. And not yourself. Do you know this kind of love? Have you seen it? Closing thought and application. Where is this love most clearly displayed? I say again, if you want to understand your Bible, you better read it through the lens of a triune God. If you want to know what's being communicated to you in the Gospel, if you want to search the depths of God, see that He is three. And that all three are involved in all that is given to us in this book and in our souls by the Spirit. It's communication of a triune God. And you come to see that relationship as the foundation for everything and it opens up to you. Where do you see that love displayed most clearly? Is the cross of Jesus Christ. As Jesus goes, this is so foundational. As our high priest, Jesus has a right to be your high priest because the wrath of God that your sin deserved, He bore as that Lamb of God John the Baptist told you about. Here's the Lamb of God. Why? He's going to die for His people. Why? Reconcile them to God. How do you know? He's told me. And He's prayed for me. What right does He have to pray for me? He's offered His blood. He's the high priest. He's the righteous one. And His offering as a high priest was accepted by the Father. No greater encouragement can you know. Every time I look at myself and begin to think that there's any chance that God would stop loving me, I, I guess I suppose I could just think about the fallen human example of me and Hudson and remember 
Father loves His Son, and the Son loves His Father. And you are a treasured gift because of that relationship that will not be lost. I pray that you will be encouraged and that as you face circumstances that try to steal your joy from you, your confidence in God, as you, I'm not telling you to ignore the realities of your own sin. Far from it. Own and acknowledge. Search me and know whether there's any wicked way in me. And as I see those wicked channels, those wicked ways in me, be compelled back to the Savior, the one with no wicked way. Isn't that what John said in 1 John 2? I'm writing these things to you, my little children, that you not sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate with Jesus Christ, the righteous. With that, I'll ask you now to go ahead and bow with me and we'll be closed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, O Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that Your Son has prayed for us and continues to intercede. Father, I praise You that He knows better what to pray than I do, and so does the Spirit. Lord, I ask that You would give us a sensitivity in our souls to His Word, that You, O God, would continue Your work in our hearts and bring unity to us as believers. Lord, I pray that all of these things would be real and not pretend or manufactured, but as a result of Your mighty power. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.